This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Janice Dean. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Martha McCallum, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. We've always been cautioned not to believe everything we see online. But artificial intelligence is making it more complicated. I am worried about the future because, for one thing, if nobody knows what's real anymore, and, you know, with the rise of chatbots, with the rise of, you know, making it easy for ordinary people to use AI, it's really going to become confusing. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. A now infamous family connected to America's opioid crisis is offering a settlement to victims and their families. But the Biden administration says it's a bad deal. Now it's up to the Supreme Court. What we'd much rather see over the next 18 years is Richard Sackler locked up in a jail cell, to be honest with you. And I'm Tammy Bruce. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. What's real? That's not the easiest thing to know these days with the rise of artificial intelligence. We have to understand why AI systems produce the answers they do. This applies across the board, but has special resonance in finance, healthcare, criminal justice, the high impact areas. Democratic Senate leader Chuck Schumer at a bipartisan forum last week on AI at the Senate. We need the companies to lead the way to help us. This is beyond uh, the ability of us to do. We can set rules and guardrails, but they got to figure out how to do it. And that is something still evolving, even in what we do here in the media, creating content. Everyone knows you can't trust everything you read online, but what if it is from a source you trust? Just last week, Sports Illustrated stories became a story when Futurism reported SI had used AI posting articles online by fake writers. The people in the bylines were not real, nor were their pictures. Sports Illustrated blamed a third-party vendor, Advan, which asserts the content was real, created by people, not chatbots. SI claims it's cut ties with Advan and says the articles in question were product reviews, though some in the industry have been skeptical of the company response. What does Howie Kurtz think? I'm really concerned. I mean, I'm not one of these, you know, AI is going to take over the world tomorrow uh, people, not panicking, but it's almost like, you know, what can you believe anymore? Now, Howie Kurtz started in journalism when we used typewriters. There was no Internet. He hosts Media Buzz on the Fox News Channel and has a Media Buzz Meter podcast. What you see online. Certainly, you can't necessarily believe photos because those are being artificially cooked up by artificial intelligence. And now, uh, as the New York Times and others have reported, uh, and this used the example of Sports Illustrated, Sports Illustrated didn't really own up to what a screwed up thing it was to use a contractor that posted bylines by people who do not exist. I would think that's pretty bad. And then Sports Illustrated said, well, you know, uh, it wasn't us. It was this other outfit and we've cut ties with them. And it was a major screw up. And people at the magazine are really ticked off about it. But the problem is far broader than just one sports magazine. 
Yeah, they this company that Sports Illustrated had used claimed that uh, those were pen names, but that the content was written by humans, by people. Do you buy that? Uh, I don't know what to buy at this point because I don't think Sports Illustrated has been particularly candid about it, and I don't think that the um, sports writers who work at SI are satisfied with the explanation. It was a very tense staff meeting with the top editor. Um, but so what? I mean, what writer do you know? I'm talking here about the real human being types uh, who doesn't want his or her name on something that's posted. So that's a tip off right there. Fake names. Fake names equals fake journalism. And everybody involved in this fiasco should be upset. Um, we're at a point now where people who want to deceive or just are lazy and want to use artificial intelligence um, can do that in a way that is really hard for most of us to detect. Sometimes there are little clues, but, you know, who wants to spend their time trying to decide whether uh, Joe Schmo is actually a person who lives in Chicago or New Orleans or is some, you know, metahuman creation? Yeah, and there have been other organizations. There was a talk about CNET using AI for articles, or BuzzFeed mm -hmm. had some creative AI assistance. Even the Associated Press apparently has been using AI for some stories in the last even 10 years, but supposedly they say uh, at the end of a story, it explains the technology's role in whatever uh, news item was put together. So... How, that's the issue here. How do you attribute it properly? Well, I think disclosure is key. But, you know, when you say at the end of the story, a lot of people don't get to the end of the story. Uh, I, so I have less problem with it when it's disclosed. And I can see where it can be a valuable tool, even for news organizations um, who, let's say, don't have enough staff to cover every high school football game. But I want to know that it's not real. And I don't want fake bylines. And I don't want to see a picture of somebody who doesn't exist. Uh, I think the lines have become so blurred that it obviously can save companies money. But sometimes can, that can be at the cost of their credibility. Yeah. And then this is not just whether it's news here. The New York Times did a big piece on AI-generated travel guidebooks, and it went into real depth, and apparently there's a lot of them available, say, on Amazon, travel guides to all over the place, and they started to go through and put AI detectors on these books and the reviews of the books, and they don't look real. Well, I don't think it's that much to worry about because uh, it only involves travel books, cooking, programming, gardening, business, crafts, medicine, religion, <laughs> and mathematics, among others, according to the Times. That's all. Uh, look, first of all, they had the example of one guy whose travel books, you know, it's basically cut and paste from the Internet. Uh, and, and there is a question about whether the authors are real or not. They found this one guy that looked at his picture and they analyzed and they found little telltale signs that his picture itself was generated by AI and things that didn't match up. He had an earring in one ear that wasn't fully closed and that sort of thing. And then just the, the idea, when you have real people like Frommer's Guide and some of the other well-known, you know, over the generations, travel books who actually do the work of going to these countries around the world, eating at the restaurants and finding out what the best attractions are. And then, you know, Mr. AI who doesn't really exist, has got the fake photo up, basically just um, 
goes online and copies and pastes, which is, you know, something we used to call plagiarism. Uh, and they're not very good. And yet that manages to boost this particular example cited by the Times to the top of the search results, which is amazing. Uh, it, it just has become like a virus that has spread. And I think Amazon's, oh, we're doing our best and we have to follow the rules. Well, they're not enforcing the rules aggressively enough if one of these things can get to the top of the uh, search engines or the Amazon recommendations. Sometimes they have, you know, Amazon's top picks and that sort of thing. Well, that doesn't mean anything if Amazon uh, isn't being more scrupulous about this. And there was one example of a woman who ordered the, um, the one that had gotten to the top of the rankings by a fake guy, got it, saw that it was very vague generality, sent it back and wrote a blistering review saying, you know, this is garbage. And wishing she had bought, you know, one of the more expensive ones. Yeah. There was a poll that Bentley and Gallup had done last month. And the question was, how much do you trust businesses to use artificial intelligence responsibly? 38% not at all. 41% not much. I mean, a lot of companies think it's a valuable tool, but apparently a lot of us are a little skeptical or a lot skeptical. <laughs> That's a very telling uh, set of poll numbers. And, you know, that's where the cost comes in. I mean, it just seems to me that if you're looking at this and people don't believe, and it's because of stories like this and the discussions we're having now, uh, that companies will do it responsibly. I think, you know, a lot of companies have just succumbed to the temptation that, you know, hey, it's great using AI. You don't got to pay them overtime. You don't have to provide lunch. Uh, they don't go on vacation, but ultimately it does erode the credibility of all these organizations, not just sports magazines, not just Amazon, all across the board. You know, we're really at the beginning of the AI boom. And, you know, there was the whole fight at the company OpenAI with the uh, founder and CEO, Sam Altman, who was fired. And there was such an uproar and so many people threatened to leave the company that they were forced, the board was forced to reinstate him. And he's, you know, like a rock star when it comes to these things. Yeah, they actually had to they get, they got rid of the board that fired him so that the new yeah, board I brought him that. back. Yeah, yeah, there was, a, there was a counter coup. But the reason I bring it up is not just about this particular company, which was a pioneer in artificial intelligence before many of us were even talking about it, but because... There was a debate apparently internally about whether or not too many companies were trying to make money off this or whether or not we need to go slower um, so that we uh, assure that it's not a bunch of uh, crap, to use a technical term. Uh, and that's a that's a difficult debate uh, made worse by the fact that a year from now, AI is going to be even more amazing. You know, in that same poll, 38 percent say they think that AI is actually better than humans in customizing content, I see. And so, I mean, how much of the feeds are people on their, you know, if they're on Facebook and they're getting their feeds or TikTok or wherever they're getting their news on social media, how much of that's AI generated these days? Almost all of it, you'd think. Well, honest answer is I don't know. I think we've lost the capacity to measure it. And not everybody has the resources of the New York Times to go digging into this and seeing that, oh, this picture of this guy isn't real and so forth. But I, I, I am worried about the future because, for one thing, if nobody knows what's real anymore and, you know, with the rise of chatbots, with the rise of, you know, making it easy for ordinary people to use AI, it's really 
going to become confusing. Now, I'm not one of those that think there's going to be an AI mutiny and they're going to take over the world. But, you know, just a half dozen years ago, I mean, you did trust the Amazon reviews and how many stars. You did trust what was on Yelp. You did trust um, what people were saying and reviewing things. And now, I mean, you could just see that slipping away. And, you know, I do this for a living and I don't know half the time if this stuff's real or not. And, and I don't know that there are enough uh, digital cops in the world to expose all the fraud that's going on. All right. Back into journalism. The Telegraph has put out a policy on AI with a permissive approach to it for back office tasks like generating story ideas, suggesting headlines, story illustration, but I guess, and even in a little bit of content, but in every way, there has to be a a person, an editorial and legal involved in clearing it all. Is that the right Mm -hmm. approach? Well, it's a step in the right direction. At least the Telegraph is trying to grapple with it and trying to be transparent about it. I think that's, again, it seems to be the way, I mean, every news organizations, certainly, which who really all they have to sell is credibility, um, as well as clickbait, (laughs) uh, needs to come up with a policy on both disclosure, how much you're going to use. The back office stuff doesn't bother me that much, but it seems to me that how long does it take if they love the back office being uh, delegated, farmed out, contracted out to non-humans before it spreads elsewhere? Howie Kurtz, host of the Fox News Channel's Media Buzz, Sunday mornings, 11 Eastern. Also, you can hear him on the Media Buzz Meter podcast. Howie, great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Same here. Thank you. Oh, and one more thing. All this week on the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition, we're focusing on the rise of AI, partnering with Fox Business, delving into the world of artificial intelligence. Tonight, AI goes to the doctor's office. What does it mean for medicine? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent and New York Times bestselling author. Join me for my brand new podcast, Searching for Heroes. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. This is Tammy Bruce with your Fox News commentary coming up. There have been multiple opioid settlements reached over the years, most often between state and county governments and pharmaceutical companies, distributors, and pharmacies. But there's a new opioid-related settlement held up in the courts, and the legal fight over it wound up before the Supreme Court. Can the Sackler family, which once ran Purdue Pharma, reach a deal with opioid victims, as well as state and local governments, while also being released from future civil challenges themselves. A discharge in bankruptcy law is essentially um, immunity from all claims except for narrow exceptions, whereas the releases here apply only to one set of claims, pre-petition claims. In some ways, they're getting a, a better deal than the usual bankruptcy discharge because, as Justice Gorsuch uh, 
indicated, they're being protected from claims of fraud and claims of willful misconduct. Justice Elena Kagan pressed the Purdue Pharma attorney Gregory Garr about why he thinks this is a fair deal. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, though, said bankruptcy court did have some latitude in reaching deals during his questioning of the U.S. Department of Justice trustee attorney Curtis Gannon. The opioid victims and their families overwhelmingly approve this plan uh, because they think it will ensure prompt payment. So in those circumstances, those narrow circumstances, bankruptcy courts for 30 years have been approving uh, plans like this. People who lost children to opioids like Jen Trejo spoke outside the court ahead of the hearing. You stole him from me with a little pill that you knew would have killed him eventually. And then you have the nerve to blame him. The addict, you said. Blame the addict. I personally don't want your money. I want your freedom. Hey, Mr. Sackler, tell me, would you give your kids or your grandkids Oxycontin? Would you? While most of the victims and families want the Supreme Court to approve this bankruptcy deal, some don't. I'm against it because basically it's 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 protecting a billionaire family um, that should not be protected under the bankruptcy laws and, and that under normal circumstances would not be protected under the bankruptcy laws. Bill Nelson is a superior court judge in Marion County, Indiana, and he lost his stepson, Brian, over a decade ago to opioid addiction. They're protected because they can buy their way out of such a problem. Um, right after the bankruptcy was filed, they took $11 billion from, from Purdue and deposit, you know, ran with it and deposited it into offshore accounts. And I just find it very hard to fathom that someone with $11 billion is, is being absolved from any liability under the bankruptcy laws. Yeah, let's, I mean, the, the issue is, right, can a bankruptcy court approve a plan here that accepts Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy plan where individuals and states and counties get paid, but at the same time, the Sackler family, which once owned Purdue, is released from future litigation. I know you deal as a judge with criminal law, but talk to us a little bit about legally why you think a bankruptcy court can't do this and, and shouldn't have been able to have signed off on such a deal. Well, they can sign off on such releases under extraordinary is the word that bankruptcy code uses, extraordinary circumstances, which to me means, you know, someone that's in uh, maybe dire financial needs, an owner of a company, even though the owner of the company is not filing individual bankruptcy they're so closely tied to the company that if they're not absolved from liability it's going to hurt the, the company's chance of reorganizing or or succeeding mm. through the bankruptcy but billionaires that that aren't under extraordinary pressure or subject to extraordinary circumstances should not be subject to that judge nelson's wife christy found her son brian fence dead in his room from an overdose he plays the sound of his wife calling 911 to other law enforcement professionals to educate them. 911. I need an ambulance. My son's not breathing. What's the address? 10731. Yes, hurry. Is he blue? <laughs> He's white. How old is he? Oh, God, he's dead. Brian was 20 years old when he died. Judge, tell us why you think it's not just Purdue Pharma but the Sackler family in particular that's responsible for Brian's death. You know, my, my, my wife said Richard Sackler murdered, murdered our son. Um, and, and they, even today they, they deny 
any wrongdoing, um, even though seven high-ranking Purdue officials have pled guilty to felonies, um, to mislabeling, to fraud. And it's just it's just not right. You know, they Richard Zackler blames the addicts. He blames the users. Um, and it's 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 not their fault. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, hey, I guess I'll become uh, addicted to Oxycontin. Um, you know, Brian was in a car wreck and, and was prescribed Oxycontin and became addicted to it. Um, so it's it's not it's not their fault. And then. Purdue get pushing and pushing and pushing and increasing the milligrams. You know, even uh, right before filing bankruptcy, they were working on a 160 milligram pill and nobody needs 160 oh milligrams um, ver- ver- uh, worth of Oxycontin. So they caused this mess. And, you know, we're, we're, we're into our, it's been going on for 25 years now. And if we haven't figured out how to solve it now, I'm just afraid the settlement's not going to do anything. You know, it's, it's $6 billion. Yes, that's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for treatment. I'm all for opioid abatement. I'm all for helping people that need the help. But $6 billion, you know, and you hear about this money being poured into to treatment facilities and, and opioid abatement and um, life-saving medications and Narcan, et cetera. Um, but what you don't hear about is this money is payable over 18 years. Right. You know, by the time, you know, and, and the real victims, the forgotten victims, the, the people that have lost and suffered tragic losses, um, get $750 million of that. I was o- reading that. O- you know, over 18 years, um, anywhere from 3500 to 48000 um, which is which is pittance. You know, it's a, it's a slap in the face payable over 18 years. So I think Christy and I would fall in the $3,500 range because we can't, we don't have financial proof that, uh, that they need to, to, to pay us more. We don't, we didn't save receipts for Brian's funeral. We didn't save receipts for his hospital and treatment costs. So, so we're in that lower range. And by the time 18 years rolls around, um, Brian would have been dead for 31 years, you know, so uh, here's your $3,500 for the loss of your son 31 years ago. So what we'd much rather see over the next 18 years is Richard Sackler locked up in a jail cell, to be honest with you. Well, I want to ask you about that. But first, I want to ask you, because you are a judge and you work in the public sector, obviously, you know, I want your thoughts on this. Most of the $6 billion that we're talking about here from Purdue would go to states and local governments. Um, as you just referenced, we've seen articles, watchdog groups, um, people doing interviews talking about where the opioid settlement money's gone so far from, you know, other companies to states and local governments. Like in New York, some of it's gone to opioid prevention centers where you can use drugs under supervision. Others talk about setting up syringe exchanges. I think um, I was reading in Louisiana, they've spent more of it on actual law enforcement. I imagine as a judge, you've thought about what public policy should look like with opioid settlement money and what is what is your reaction to hearing where the money's gone thus far um i i i would say that most states and indiana is one of them that that are pretty much already flush with with such what with such money but i've here in indiana i don't i don't see where any of the money has gone um we just built a brand new justice center campus um complete with a brand new treatment center right out the front door um, 
of the jail and um i haven't seen it's we've been here over a year now and i haven't seen a single person walk through the front door of that of that place um it's called the adult intervention center Hmm. Uh, its purpose is for the arresting officers to if, if instead of arresting someone with either a known or obvious mental illness issue or drug issue there to take these people to that intervention center instead of the jail or a sentencing judge can instead of sentencing them to jail can have them directed to the adult intervention center um i tried to do that the other day and and no one no one knew the process to get that done so oh wow you know we don't we we've got them some of the money and some of the ability to do that but no one seems to know how or or what to do um Mm. so i you know we've got the money we've got the ability um do we have enough to solve a a a 30-year problem absolutely not but we don't we don't know where the money's going every every year our governor in in his state of the state address says that that we're working on and we're resolving and doing the best we can to solve the opioid epidemic but i i just don't see that getting done Hmm. i want your final thoughts on criminal charges really i mean you we know purdue pharma has had criminal cases against it but the sackler family members have not been charged with anything that would i think be unique right in this set of um, circumstances as we look at all as we look at the broad landscape of opioid settlement cases um, and and all of those involved but it it does sound like you would like to see criminal charges against the actual family absolutely I, i i think they're warranted i don't know if you've watched any of the of the documentaries some of which are very very well done um through the documentaries they've they've bribed fda officials they've they fast-tracked fda approval of oxycontin Um, like i said seven officials have already been indicted uh, for false you know false labeling false marketing i think there are a lot of a lot of criminal charges for subject to indictment um I forget who I heard it from, which which really appalled me. But um, the latest indictment, I think the one from 2020, where uh, three of the executives were indicted, um, believe it or not, are tied to this settlement that if this settlement doesn't go through, which which is unheard of, the indictments go away. Mm. Uh, I've never, ever heard of criminal charges being tied to the outcome of a bankruptcy settlement. Mm. Um, <laughs> so it's, wow. it's, it's, it's all about protecting the Sacklers. Um, it's, it's not about, you know, the Sacklers say we want to help. We want to give this money. Um, we want to help opioid abatement, get people the help they need. Um, but we want to be protected. It's, it's all about protecting the Sacklers. Right. And from my from my viewpoint, that's the main reason I'm against this whole thing. You need to hit the Sacklers where it hurts, and that's their pocketbook. Um, and that's that's the main reason, I guess, that my wife and I are against it. Well, Judge Bill Nelson of Marion County, Indiana, thank you so much for joining us. 
thank you and um, appreciate your support. Jalosi with your Fox True Crime Minute. The Los Angeles Police Department announced the arrest of a suspected serial killer who allegedly killed four people in four days. Police announcing 33-year-old Jared Powell was arrested in connection with the murders. Officials believe Powell murdered three homeless men in the past week. Police say he walked up to each homeless individual, opened fire, and then walked away. The victims were on the streets alone when they were killed, not in or near homeless encampments. Powell was already in custody for killing 42-year-old Nicholas Symbolin, an employee of the Los Angeles County Chief Executive Office. Police say Powell followed him home, robbed and shot him, and then fled the scene. After that killing, the LAPD and the Beverly Hills Police Department were able to track down Powell's car with license plate scanners. And when he was arrested, a handgun was found in the car. It was the same weapon linked to the three homeless killings. Powell is being charged with murder and robbery. No word on a motive. There's more on this story at foxnews.com. Subscribe to the Fox True Crime Podcast with Emily Campagno. I'm Gianna Jalo with your Fox True Crime Minute. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tammy Bruce. What's on your mind? America in 2023 is looking more and more like Germany, just before Adolf Hitler took power in 1933. With anti-Semitism growing rapidly, too many in our political leadership, culture, and society ignore or minimize the danger of this toxic hatred with indifference, excuses, and denials. We must not allow the cancer of anti-Semitism to spread in America as it did in Europe 90 years ago. The Nazis in the 1930s and 1940s Germany proudly boasted of their hatred of Jews, but the 21st century anti-Semites, many of them young people on the left, deny that they are what they are. Instead, to avoid what the reality of their bigotry really means, they cloak their Jew hatred as political opposition to the state of Israel. Absurdly, many anti-Semites even claim that Hamas terrorists who murdered about 1,200 people and took about 240 hostages in Israel on October 7th and have fired thousands of rockets into the Jewish state since then, don't hate Jews and are just really virtuous freedom fighters. Even if you believe this nonsense, how do you explain anti-Semitism crossing the Atlantic to infect America. After all, Jews in the United States aren't responsible for actions of the Israeli government any more than Muslim Americans were responsible for the September 11th terrorist attacks. Many protests since October 7th labeled as being pro-Palestinian have in fact been displays of vicious anti-Jewish hatred. About 400 students at a New York City high school, where about 30 percent of students are Muslim, quote, rampaged through the halls for nearly two hours after they discovered a teacher who had attended a pro-Israel rally, forcing the terrified educator to hide in a locked office as the teen mob tried to push its way into her classroom, the New York Post reported. In a bizarre display of denial and literally blaming the victims, Hamas supporters speaking at an Oakland, California city council meeting actually claim that the atrocities of October 7th in Israel were carried out by the Israel Defense Forces, not by Hamas. 
The council then rejected a condemnation of Hamas for the attack by a 6-2 to two vote. Like the Nazis under Hitler, modern anti-Semites hate Jews simply because they are Jews, with envy playing a significant role. Ultimately, anti-Semites have always used contrivances to justify their hatred since biblical times, falsely blaming Jews for conduct that sparked their persecution. Now Jews, and not just Israelis, are being blamed for the thousands of deaths in the Gaza Strip in the Israel-Hamas war. But the real blame falls on the terrorist group Hamas, which commits shocking atrocities, war crimes, kidnaps innocent civilians, and uses their own civilians as human shields, and also refuses to give up the commitment in its charter to wiping Israel off the map and killing Jews. What these knuckle-dragging savages rely upon is the indifference of normally decent people. In a prescient warning, Elie Weissel, a Holocaust survivor who wrote about the worst period of anti-Semitism in history, told us in 1999 why we cannot ignore anti-Semitism whenever and wherever it arises. Quote, indifference elicits no response, Weissel said at a White House ceremony. Indifference is not a response. Indifference is not a beginning. It is an end. And therefore, indifference is always the friend of the enemy, for it benefits the aggressor, never his victim, whose pain is magnified when he or she feels forgotten. I'm Tammy Bruce, a contributor at Fox News, and this column originally appeared at AMAC.us. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.